So all of our announcements, let's jump into Luke 18. High hopes to finish Luke 18 today. We'll see what we can do. Luke 18, the rich ruler, approximately where we left off. So let's grab our context here. So we had, let the little children come to me. So the humility of the child, unless you, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child who can do nothing on their own, shall not enter it. So this humility commended of the child. And then in that immediate context, a ruler asked him, you with me? If you grab a Bible, if you need them uh, in the back there. Uh, Luke 18, 18. A ruler asked Jesus. So that word for ruler there is typically a word for like a leader of the synagogue, like a high, high, um, high up. So not just a, a dude, but a high up in the synagogue. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, liar. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) One thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And there's some more teaching there. We'll come back to that. So let's let's deal with the first half first. So ruler comes to Jesus right after the whole children, let the little children come to me, saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So already built into the question, what's the problem? I I do... I mean, that's, we know that's an issue when it comes to salvation. You can't do anything to have eternal life on your own. But the other problem has to do with this word inherit. What do you do to inherit anything? Nothing. In fact, uh, receiving an inheritance has more to do with like what, you're, what family you're born into. And furthermore, what has to happen before you can receive an inheritance, unless you're in the prodigal son parable? Someone has to die, which again, by the way, is the significance of the prodigal son parable. When the son is asking for his inheritance early, he's saying, dad, you're dead to me, right? So here, what what must I do to inherit? Well, he can't do anything to inherit. And he asks a law question. What can I do? When you ask Jesus a law question, you get a law answer. If you want to pull up, if you want to pull yourself up to heaven by your own bootstraps, there's a way to do it. And I'm going to tell you how. It's the law. So Jesus said to him, first, why do you call me good? So this is getting at, he's trying to expose the Pharisee for trying to to trap him. Uh, No one is good except God alone. So if no one is good except for God alone, which, which the high priest would certainly agree with, and you're calling me good, then you're, right? A plus B, if A equal, what's it? If A plus, that's right. Can you say it in Spanish, Ty? 
So if, if, he's calling, if he's calling Jesus good and only God alone is good, then he's effectively calling Jesus God. See? How's that math formula work? No. Yeah, there we go. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Thank you. I'm a pastor, not a mathematician. Thanks, Mark Wolfgram and the Board of uh, Finance to keep me out of prison. Uh, let's see. No one is good except for God alone. So God alone is the standard of good. And I have a question on the handout here. So um, let's pause there before we get into the, the commandments. So the question first handout is, what's the problem with thinking of eternal life as having a checklist of prerequisites? I just Googled images for heaven checklist. And I got this little picture here. So you think about this. So, so there's a checklist for heaven and it's all about doing stuff. And this, it's interesting. It's like this image wasn't like a, it wasn't done in jest from what I could tell. It was actually like trying to be helpful. So do be, be so and look at the sum of stuff that's on there. Do good stuff. Is it bad to do good stuff? No. Is it bad to be baptized? No. But so even that's turning baptism into something that I do. I can check that off. Go to church. So now changing church going itself as now a checklist of things that I must do. Keep the Ten Commandments. The summary of the commandments. Love others. Give to charity. Receive communion. Say your prayers. Read the Bible. And then you're good. So now I've just done nothing but turned heaven into something that I can merit by my own deeds. And that's kind of what this guy's doing. What must I do? Give me the checklist. And he says, well, you know that you know the checklist. No, it's a question two on the handout. No one is good except for God alone. Goodness is therefore objective, right? We talked about this a little bit in Theology on Tap this past week. So goodness um, unfortunately, is subjectively determined in our culture today. So who defines good and evil in our culture today? Well, the, so the media shapes it, or maybe responding to the general consensus of what seems to be good according to subjective society opinion, popular opinion, right? Which is, by the way, how, how uh, one can try to talk about the law I mean, to get into a conversation on the Constitution and the law and so forth. So we would say, or one might argue that good and evil in the Constitution, right and wrong in the Constitution, kind of flow out of this Christian worldview. It is therefore necessarily objective. There is a good and an evil that's clear. Uh, but rather, the way that it's kind of shapes today is as like those who would, they see the Constitution as what's called a living document, would try to say, Yes, there was an opinion in the Constitution of those who wrote the Constitution, but it's more important that the Constitution reflects what? Society's views today. So you try to, and this is, by the way, the same um, view, the liberal view of Bible, interpreting the Bible. So when Paul says things are wrong in Romans, that was true at the time of Rome, but not today. See? So this, the definition of what is good and evil is according to what is popularly held by the culture. In court, too, they ultimately define what is good and evil because they're trying to keep their finger on the pulse of society's preference today. See? Now, what in total opposite view of that is we're, we're saying that there's an objective good and evil. So God determines what is good. And the further question I have on here is, um, 
How might we use goodness as a tactic in our conversations with non-believing neighbors? So, th- so this idea of uh, goodness being subjective to the culture. So culture maybe today would say abortion is, is okay. And that was this tricky thing with, with overturning Roe versus Wade. It's like, well, the, the, while Roe v. Wade might seem unconstitutional, so the Supreme Court could overturn it, well, the general, the general population today is okay with abortion, right? So we're going to let that determine how the Supreme Court's looking at the Constitution. Um, so t- taking that, setting that argument aside for a moment, if you're having a conversation with someone and they say, for example, um, they don't believe in God because how could a... How could a God, if there was a God and he was all powerful, how could he allow tragedies such as uh, Hitler, uh, 9-11, um, child leukemia? So notice what they've done is they've thrown out the, any kind of ground of objective morality. So there can't be a God because there's bad stuff that happens. But you can't say anything is bad. So it, you can't say 9-11 was bad. You can't say Hitler was bad or that child leukemia was bad unless you have some sort of standard of what good is. See? So you have to, you can't make these general claims of goodness and badness without a general definition, an objective standard of what goodness is. So in our conversation with our neighbors who, are, who maybe are, are rejecting God, you can, you can push on objective morality, objective goodness. So just, and you put it as a question. It's kind of fun. Because when you end any, anything with a question, it's, it softens it. So you say, well, so, well I'm just confused. You said, you said that it was bad that, that, that 9-11 happened. Well, how, how did you come to that conclusion that bad, well, what is bad? What do you mean by bad? Well, you know, not good. Well, what is good? What's your definition of good? Well, you know. Well, I, I, I don't know. So good is whatever you think good is? See the problem? So now we're having a conversation about objective morality, objective standards of goodness. And C.S. Lewis is masterful in his treatment of this in both um, Abolition of Man and Mere Christianity, where he's using what is kind of built in all of us, a... a, a almost subliminal, not subliminal, a um, subconscious, thank you, a subconscious sense of what is good and evil and what is right and wrong that's generally held by everyone, even those who reject God. Because from a certain perspective, you might say that non-believers are even more objectively good than Christians. Can you make that claim? I mean, that's, that's a very generic claim. But let me specify it more. Can you find individual pagans who are more pious than you? Are more good rather than you? Certainly, right? So, but where are they getting this idea of goodness? Who's defining the goodness? We would say Romans is written on their hearts. But that's, that's where we can use the objective goodness toward where we get this, where do you get an idea of an objective goodness? And how do we know what that, definition is, unless it's revealed to us by the one who gives us the objective goodness. So we would say the Bible. But now we're talking, now we're talking about the Bible and the revealed will of God. But we started with him saying that it was bad that 
somebody got leukemia. So you can use objective morality as a stepping stone toward talking about ultimately Jesus, the cross. And we would, we would take that to push that further. It is for the badness of the world that Jesus died. So in, in response specifically to how could a loving God let bad stuff happen? Well, the loving God solved the bad, the bad stuff. He solved the badness problem by going to the cross. He doesn't just sit by and do nothing. He solves the problem in his way, right? So that's just how, and Jesus kind of does the same, way, the same way. He's talking about goodness. How can you, how are you calling me good? Only God knows what is good. So what's, what do you mean by goodness? No one is good except for God alone. You know the, the source of what is good and evil. You are a high priest in the, in the synagogue. And he gives the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus kind of lays out the commandments with the same precision that the Godfather's first wife did when she was like, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Anybody? No? You don't watch it as diligently as me when you watch. So what's the order of, what's with the order of the commandments here? Is he in order? What, what's the numbering? Six, five, seven, eight, four. So he's not in order. So did Jesus forget to study in synagogue school? What do you think? I'll let you in on a little hint. The commentators don't agree, and I heard no convincing arguments, so I don't know the answer either. Um, it's totally speculative, so that's why I ask. What do you think? Good. Yeah, I think that was the that was the most the most convincing argument. But then it presumes that like we don't because we don't know Jesus was doing this and we don't know the guy's actual sins except for he's obviously got this issue with money and self righteousness. So he thinks he's holier than he is, and he also has he's not taking care of his neighbor. But he goes after adultery, and then he starts to lean in. He he kind of. One might say he either starts with an issue this guy might actually have. He goes after adultery and murder, so hatred in his heart perhaps. Or maybe he's starting with what this guy can easily say, I don't have a problem with that. Like I've never committed adultery. I've, I've never murdered. And then he starts to kind of hone in on more what the problems are with possessions, reputations, and his father and mother, which Jesus has railed against the Pharisees for neglecting their parents all the time. So maybe that's it. Who knows? But the point for us is simply that if you ask Jesus, how did I get to, how can I get to heaven on my own? He's going to give you the law. You ask Jesus a law question, he's going to give you a law answer. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. So question three on your handout, how could the rich ruler think he had kept the commandments his whole life? How could he actually think he had done that? How does one how does one look at the commandments and walk away unscathed? What do you think? Good. So limit the law to... 
particular external actions where Jesus actually pushes it harder down into the heart so that, so that adultery is done with the eye and the heart, murder is done with the heart, right? Not just the, not just the hands. So limiting it to particular external actions, softening the law, lowering the bar. So you say that, was there a comment over here? The what? The delusion? Oh, he's completely delusional. He actually thinks he's, he actually thinks that he's kept the commandments. And the only way to do that is to actually, is to actually weaken the commandment. In fact, as we talked about in Theology on Tap on Thursday, so the, the best way I can think of to keep the fifth commandment, to not murder your neighbor, would be to have someone like tie me to a pole inside a cave in the middle of nowhere. So then I can't actually kill anyone. The problem is the commandment doesn't just call me to not murder my neighbor, but also, and this is the masterful nature of Luther's small catechism, we should fear and love God so we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, so don't hurt him, but what? Help and support him in every physical need, which I cannot do if I'm tied to a pole in a cave somewhere. So I can't keep the... I can't keep the positive side of the law. I, while I, can't, I might avoid the negative, I can't help everybody. And this is what's so helpful about like, um, when we even using the homeless, the homeless bags that we got there in the narthex today, like um, the law calls me to help my neighbor in his physical need, not just the first homeless guy I come to, but every homeless guy I come to. And to take their situation of homelessness like, you can speculate, maybe this guy's not really homeless. He's probably making more money than I am with this, quite the racket he has here. Um, you're trying to put the worst construction on stuff to try to justify you not helping this homeless guy. The law calls you to help not just one, but every neighbor. So every homeless guy you come upon becomes your neighbor. Because neighbor is whoever's closest to you. That's where it starts. So family. So wife, children, parents, and then it kind of goes out from there. Coworkers, actual neighbors in your neighborhood. And so every time you walk past a homeless guy that you don't help, you're breaking the fifth commandment. And that's the point. The point of the law is to, is to just, well, obviously if you helped every homeless person in the world, then you would quickly become what? Homeless yourself. So it's getting at the unkeepability of the law. That's what Jesus is after here. To, to, to raise the bar. But this guy had lowered the bar of the law to make, it, to, make him, to make it look like he had kept it, at least to give him the delusional peace of mind that he had, that he had achieved the law. And Jesus doesn't, will not have it. Because if this guy thinks he's getting into heaven on his own, then he's, he's missing the gospel, which is hell. So he's given this guy a gift when he goes after him here in a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might have fudged a couple hundred bucks in, in my taxes, but I'm not Bernie Madoff. Right. Right. So like I'm, I mean, it's standard and no one's perfect, but I'm not as bad as I'm more perfect than those people. Right. So right. the standard using the standard to, to find my goodness and all Jesus won't have any of it. So um, number four, why did Jesus bother talking to the ruler. Why bother talking to him at all? 
He's setting him free. He's about to smack him with the law, which is giving him the gift. So the law, I mean, the second half of question number three, the purpose of the law for the ruler was to save himself. And for Jesus, it's to show the need for the cross. Because if you could do it on your own, he didn't have to go to the cross, but he did. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So um, all that you have, we'll come back to this, I think, I get a question on this later, but um, if all that you have belongs to you as your own personal possession, then you've made it already into an idol and you've, you've denied that it's from God. All that you have is entrusted to you as a gift, as a steward, right? So your time, your money, your possessions, all that you have is his that he's entrusted to you for a time. And with that view, nothing you have belongs to you. You are uh, unto yourself, you are poor, right? Because all that I have belongs to God. Now, there's implications for that for like giving. This is not saying give all your money to church. But as, rather, it's, 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 it's richer than that. It's the, the, money, the money a husband spends on a flower for his wife is ultimately just as noble and just as holy as spending of money as putting money in an offering plate, helping the needy, and so forth. Why? The money comes from God, the wife came from God, and God's given me to love my spouse. Um, so that now I'm, as a Christian, I'm seeing all the people in my life and all the ways I'm spending my money are ultimately God-pleasing rather than stacking up like the money I put in the offering plate somehow, somehow holy or, or held, held to a higher, a higher holiness of spending money. Um, but now all that I have has been given to me by God. And now I approach church with this freedom of like, yeah, there's a need, if there's a need I can help with, I'll help with it, but it's all done. It's all done with complete freedom. Because all that you have belongs to God. So you, you buying diapers for the kids is you buying diapers for God who gave you the kid to put diapers on the kid, right? Same with the food and all the rest. So when it comes to a church and how we approach giving, it's like, well, we don't have to be in this awesome facility. We don't have to have it heated. We don't have to have lights you don't have to have a full-time pastor or two or three. Well, I could go get a job at Starbucks is where I'd probably go because you get like a kickback every week. You get free coffee. You think I'm addicted now, you wait. <laughs> but think of that. So like, but, what, but when Dave is at the hospital as he is now, I can't go on a Tuesday at three o'clock or whatever and give him communion and speak the comfort of Jesus into his ear because I, gotta, I have my shift, right? I can't just walk away from, so that's the idea. So, so the church is able to say with freedom now, hey, we kind of want somebody to visit us in the hospital and to study God's words, so we can preach faithfully. And um, so we're gonna kind of put our money together and try to come up with a way to pay for a pastor. And then it goes on from there, all the fun stuff that we do too. Let's, okay, we can make an impact on the community and reach some people uh, with the gospel. If we had a school, we can teach our own the faith as well. So it'd be kind of cool to have a school. It's all done, let's put it that way, it's all done with freedom. 
and not by demand of the law. So that's not what Jesus is getting at. I mean, that's not a specific point here, but all that you have, when he, the language of all that you have is, uh, I like to focus in on that as a reminder that all that we have ultimately comes from him, from God, and this guy didn't see it. Sell all that you have, give to the poor and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So he was convicted by the law. The law had impacted him with, with guilt. And this, so he had gone, imagine it. It's not just that he was very sad. What he, he had just said to Jesus that I've kept the, I've kept the law my what? My whole life. So Jesus took his idol and what did he do? He smashed it, shattered it which is what Jesus is always doing in the Old Testament, right? Whenever there's an idol, it gets, it gets totally obliterated. And that's what Jesus does here. So this guy's whole, like, everything just collapsed. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So verse, let's see, question on your handout number five found a nice little gigantic needle there in the desert. It looks like a, it looks from like a space balls or comb in the desert. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't watch space balls, but. <laughs> uh, let's see. Does wealth exclude a person from heaven? Why or why not? Does wealth exclude? First of all, what is wealth? What does it mean to be wealthy? That gets into the subjective, to, subjectively determined. By any account in history, all of us. I have, there's, a to, there's more than one toilet in my house with running water. I could get bread at Mariano's sale rack for like a quarter. There's so much, we have so much wealth, right? But even to push, I mean, fine, we, we can say, even looking at like the standard of tax brackets and so forth, we're always gonna say that there's someone this, this, Jesus here is talking ultimately to the guy in the tax bracket above me and beyond. It's wealth, true wealth starts at just above me, right? Because that's what he's getting at. Those guys have a problem, see? And now we turn, that's not what the law is intending to do here. Does Jesus die for the sin of idolatry? Duh, yes. But can, idolat can the idolatry of wealth become such a God that it lures us away from God? Um, I mean, there's the brilliance of Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. He is strong. The stronger I am, the less I need him. The more that I have, the less I need him. But the more my pockets and hands are empty, the more they're full of him, see? And so this, um, it, it's just like all things, it can become, it can become an idol. And so, and it's a serious idol. He does want us to be mindful of this, that the idolatry of wealth is a serious one. Um, the, rich, the rich do go to heaven, but not because of anything in them. So the rich who get into heaven don't get, don't get into heaven according to their wealth or lack thereof, because you could use some of the same things. It's how difficult it is for poor people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not about the person, but about whose they belong to, who they are in. So we don't get into heaven according to our own person, but Jesus on and for us. But we recognize here the riches can draw us from Jesus. So it's a good warning of the law. Certainly wealth does not exclude a person from heaven, um, but we wanna 
let the law do its, do its work on us, to turn us from the idolatry of wishes or riches. And that's number uh, five and six on your handout. The warning Jesus gives regarding wealth, just, regarding wealth, just like all, um, all the commandments, um, can become an idol for us. And we worship idols. It turns us away from the living and true God. So here he smashes our idol of wealth. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, so they even acknowledged back then, who can be saved? Because it seems like we're all wealthy. What, who can be saved? And he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God because it's not according to a person. Um, so Jesus is hitting this individual man with a particular sin or a particular weakness that he needed to hear. And if we were the ones standing in front of Jesus with the illusion that we had kept the law, the, the delusion, delusion, um, he would do the same for each of us, but probably with a different, a different command. The one thing that I refuse to let go of, I'm better maybe than everybody else on everything else. But this one thing, it's not really so bad. It's actually not really a sin right? Because now I'm redefining the law according to my own weaknesses and strengths. So you got to be careful with that. And so Jesus here, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So we cannot get into heaven on our own person. It's all about what he does. Then Peter says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. We left everything we have, and now we're totally up to um, to where you're leading us around. And he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So number seven in your handout, verse 30 promises many times more than what has been left behind, than, which I should say, than what has been left behind. Of what does that more consist? So think about this, and I'm, and I'm kind of speculating on, on this, but I think we can, a healthy way to look at this would be if a person is operating with this, this idolatrous illusion that the stuff that I have is giving me peace, my stuff, the more stuff I have, the more padded my retirement account is. I mean, especially when you, with, like every other day I get some email from somebody telling me that I should be panicking about the food shortages that are inevitably coming at some point, right? So how many extra cans of beans do I need in my basement before I can feel safe? When is it, how many cases from Costco need I buy? How many of those five-gallon buckets of survival packs do I need to buy from whatever the junk mail is that week, right? So when I'm looking, and I look at my stuff, my food surplus, my retirement surplus, even my family, if I'm looking to any of these things as my peace, then it's an idol that needs to be shattered. But in this life, I'm gonna have him promise to have more. Not more stuff, I would argue, but more of that which the, the idolatry of stuff promised me, peace. So when I'm walking around with Jesus, I have that which nothing else can give me. You can take away all my stuff and I have more, see? That makes sense. That's, and that's just how I, my, I'm, I like that interpretation. Um, any questions or comments? Is that last part clear? All right, flip over your handout here, and let's.
take a running sprint to finish 18. Jesus foretells his death a third time. Verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. We talked about this before. Uh, no matter where you are in Israel, Jerusalem is always up. It's theologically up. It's the high point for their, their worship life. It's also higher elevation. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they, had, they did not grasp what was said. So they're going up to Jerusalem. And uh, this is actually referenced briefly in, at the beginning, or I think in the middle of today's gospel lesson from John 11. They're like, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem because they had gotten this idea, and they weren't wrong, that the closer you get to Jerusalem, the closer you're getting to the guys who want to kill you. Because that's where the Pharisees and the high priests all were. And so when Jesus goes down to Bethany to, to raise Lazarus, and then he actually raises Lazarus, he knew exactly what he was doing. Every, so that we're going up to Jerusalem so that everything written by the, about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. That word accomplished is the same to tetelestai, uh, the, the word of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It is fulfilled. So Jesus already dropping that same word here. Uh, all that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets. So Jesus, at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, Jesus, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who didn't recognize him because their eyes were shut, then he, he tells them how the whole of the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, testify about him. So he basically said the Bible is all about Jesus. But those disciples on the road to Emmaus don't have a New Testament. It hasn't been written yet. So when Jesus says the Bible is about Jesus, he's talking about the Old Testament, which is harder for us to see. As a New Testament church, we're like, well, the New Testament's all about Jesus. The Old Testament's all that law stuff. And that misses the point. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. And here he's even clear, everything that's written about the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is a messianic title, especially in Daniel 7. Um, and then we get a, some really clear pictures of what Jesus will be doing and what Jesus lays out in verse 32 and 33 with the shame, mocked, shamefully treated, flogging, killed is Isaiah 52 and 53. The, the Old Testament from Good Friday, the, the lamb led to his slaughter. When you read through that, it's, just, it's shocking. Like how could this be so predictive of what Jesus is doing on the cross? And then um, Hosea 6.2 actually talks about the resurrection, the third, suffering for two days or, or being dead for two days on the third day uh, rising. So that's the, the, the voice of the prophets pointing toward what Jesus is gonna be doing. And it, of course, so he just called himself the son of man. He said, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to Jerusalem to die, which is like, Meow. So they, cause they're excited for this messianic military leader who's gonna come into, the Messiah is gonna come and slaughter all the enemies. And that's not, and that's what the disciples were all expecting. That's why Peter is so quick on the sword on, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here they come, let's get them. And that's not what Jesus is after at all, right? So he is flogged and killed. And then on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus is himself saying that he's gonna suffer and die and rise. 
So number two, on the back of your handout there, what is the significance of Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection for the reliability of the rest of Jesus' teaching? That's kind of a verbose question, but the idea is a lot of, I use C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, Lord. So this little graph there on the side, there's three views one can have about Jesus because the historical, it's, 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 a tr- it's, um, it's held by, by even non-Christian historians that there's, it's, it's, it's like not disputable that, hit, that Jesus existed in history. He was a historical figure. What is the issue? Not that he existed, but what? That he rose. Even his death is attributed by lots of non-biblical sources who were actually enemies of the gospel, who had no reason to lie about it. So the, the existence of Jesus, the fact that he had a following, and the fact that he died is historical from, from the way that we talk about anything as historical fact. It is historical fact. Now we would press it further and say the resurrection is also historical fact. But that's ultimately the issue, that's the issue of faith. So if I'm a person who's able to say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but I do believe he was a great teacher. What I'm having to overlook is when Jesus says stuff like he does today, that I'm going to die and rise again. Because if he says he's going to die and rise again, he says that he's the son of man, he's the Messiah, he calls himself God, right? If he's saying all those things, then he's crazy or he's lying. So there's your graph. Jesus says, I am God, or he says, I'm going to rise from the dead, whichever way you want to go. If, that, if that's true, then he's God, period. He is the Lord. But if it's false, then Jesus is a liar, and you can't, you can't take half of what he says as reliable. Like Jesus lays out this helpful morality for us to teach at VBS to your kids, um, but I mean, he, he didn't actually rise from the dead. He was a crazy, he's just a really good teacher. That's only taking half the message. Uh, or he's crazy. So he's, he's either crazy or a liar, or he's telling the truth, which means he's God. And this would have been verifiable because when, he's, when he says on the third day he will rise, he could have just said, that after flogging him, they will kill him. And then there will be a, a rising up of the people of Israel. And then the, the world will be changed with the proclamation of victory over Rome. Or he can even say victory over sin and death. We just kind of define it in weird ways. He doesn't say, but anyway, he says, I will rise up. He's saying, this is verifiable now. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, he verifies the, uh, he brings veracity to everything else that he said, reliability to the rest of his, his teaching. Does that make sense? Because you'll see it like the Episcopalians. Um, I mean, to pick on the Episcopalians because of, uh, forget the, the guy's, so it's uh, Spung was his last name. I believe he's dead now. He was like an Anglican bishop high up who denied, the, like he, was, he said he, he could confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed except for the part about he rose again from the dead. Everything else I can hold. The historicity of Jesus, but the fact that he rose from the dead, I'm going to take, I'm just going to pull that one piece out. So if you pull out the resurrection of Jesus from the Christian worldview, what is left? What's the point? You have to kind of fabricate some sort of other value. And so like in the mainline Christian Protestant churches in America today that, that deny the reliability of the New Testament, 
have to manufacture some other usefulness of the Christian faith. And it is morality, love. And it, but that becomes subjectively determined, right? Because the Bible is subjectively determined according to my context. So I can use the Bible to teach the first shall be last, the last shall be first, love others, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I'm going to take that much of Jesus as a fortune cookie in the same way that you and I might occasionally say, you know, Confucius said something pretty interesting here. But I'm not going to like shape my life after the ways of Confucius or Buddha or even Muhammad. Might there have been interesting things that they said along the way? Sure. That doesn't make me a Muslim, right? You see? So his re- quoting the resurrection is quite significant here. Now, this is the third time that he's done it, and it's even clearer. This time he heightens the sense of shame. He says, mocked and shamefully treat- treated. So that, that's the distinctiveness of this third prediction. But they understood none of these things. They didn't see it. And even further, the saying was hidden. That's a divine, called divine passive. It's not just that they couldn't see, but they were hidden. So in a way, God had not opened their eyes, which has us understanding faith as a a gift. They didn't see it yet, and they wouldn't see it until Easter morning. Jesus heals a blind. Any questions or comments there? And then we can get to the blind beggar before we run out of time. Yes, Tom. Another option we'll run into is people will claim Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Mm. That was added to the Gospels later to try to make yeah, you'll hear, so Tom, if you didn't hear that, so Tom said that a lot of times people will say that Jesus' claims of divinity were added later um, to, try to, to try to justify Christianity as a movement or whatever, to create more mo- momentum for the movement. It's just historically, it's, it's factually inaccurate based on the, what's called the textual apparatus. It's the, all of the original, the oldest manuscripts that we have, that are the first Greek New Testaments that we have, they all have every verse, every word in every verse has a score. So a Greek New Testament, you can look down at the footnotes and every word has like a lettering next to it. And you go down to the footnote and they'll say like all the different manuscripts that omit this particular verse or, um, or it'll give it a high rating because it's in all the, it's all, all the earliest manuscripts. So when something's in all the earliest manuscripts, it's more reliable than the ones that are added like later. So the later manuscripts are always understood in kind of keeping in check with the earliest manuscripts that we have and all the early manuscripts that we have. It's not like, yeah, everything, nothing talks about the resurrection until 200 years after Jesus. No, all the main stuff is in the early, the stuff that's, the stuff that's not in the earliest manuscripts, your Bible, in fact, your company issued um, ESV, and uh, most of your translations will do this, like in John 8, uh, you know, is it John 8? Do, the woman, when G, woman is caught in adultery and Jesus bends down and writes in the sand, that's not in the earliest manuscripts. So it's probably added later. Did it happen? Maybe, but it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. Does it seem out of character for Jesus? No. So it's not really an issue. But, and, but it's also not bringing doubt to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're open about we're, when it comes, it's called textual criticism. We're, we're open and honest about what was in the earliest manuscripts, where there's, where there's like differences of word order, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Does that change anything? No. Uh, the other significant one is the end of Mark. The ending of Mark isn't in the earliest manuscripts either. And that becomes somewhat problematic for Lutherans because Luther quotes it in 
uh, one of his baptism, one of the four questions of baptism, it's whoever is believed and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's in the section of also disciples, like being able to be bit by snakes and not die and all this kind of stuff. So did he say it? Possibly. Most likely, yes, because there wasn't really a reason to lie about it. But it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, so we can be honest about that. It doesn't change the teaching on baptism either, by the way, because baptism is taught many, many other places. All right, blind beggar, real quick. Let's see if we can tackle it in two minutes. So he draws near to Jericho. I'll just put it as a story real quick. So Jesus is coming near Jericho, which is on the way to Jerusalem on the main thoroughfare. It's a perfect place to sit if you're, if you're blind, because if you're blind, you're, you're, at the, you're at the mercy of everyone else to, to, to provide for you. And there he is begging. He hears a crowd, duh, because he couldn't what? He hears the crowd coming. And notice if he's blind, he's also got a heightened sense of hearing. So he's, he's actually listening to conversations as well. He requires what this meant. What's, the, what's all the fuss about? They said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He has heard of Jesus, especially in his shoes. He's, he's mindful of this, this guy who's healing the blind, which is a direct messianic prophecy that's quoted by when, when Jesus is saying all the things that he's gonna fulfill from Isaiah. Remember John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends, Jesus sends his disciples to tell John, all that you have seen, the dead are raised, the blind receive their sight. This is all messianic. And, and, the, and he cries out, the blind guy cries out, Jesus, son of David. No, Titan from Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's Jesus, son of David, the messianic title. Kyrie eleison, have mercy on me. Which we sing it in the liturgy, the Kyrie, right? Have mercy on me. But then this is the best part. Those who were in front rebuked him. Come on, man, get out of the way. Be quiet. Let's, can you keep it down? Jesus is important. But then he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So get this. So, the crowd, so if you're the blind guy, the, you hear the crowd coming. You can kind of judge that, okay, it's getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. Jesus is here. And he starts screaming, have mercy on me. Jesus, Jesus well, I can't see. You can see him kind of floundering around, making a big scene. He's getting pushed away. And then the crowd starts to do what? Get quieter again. And you can just see this devastation. So as Jesus is walking and, and with all the noise and all the distractions and all the crowd, he's getting closer to his own death. And then he hears, he just, boom, Jesus, verse 40, and Jesus stopped. So every, I mean, every, just very powerful moment. Jesus stops, commands him to be brought to him. He came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well, says the ESV, but it's also fair to translate that your faith has saved you, which is the same, the same Greek word there. Recover your, your sight. Your faith has saved you. So his eyes were already opened according to faith. Going back to the blindness of the disciples who did not see that Jesus was the, how he was going to die on the cross and be raised, right? They, it's, their eyes were shut. And in direct contrast, immediately on the heels of that, you get the blind guy who can see, even though he's blind. And then Jesus opens his, his eyes as well. Immediately recovered his sight and followed him, discipled, followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Any quick questions on that? Finished it, 18, yes, sir. Lots of movies, Bible movies. Shows, you know, 
Yeah, how could they? He's such a good guy. Yeah, good. Anything else? All right. The Lord be with you.